0: All right, well, good morning. If you will uh, come on in and find a seat, we'll go ahead and get started with our our Sunday school hour, and it feels like the mic might be just a tad hot. Um, Very good to be with you all this morning. What a blessing it is to to just be gathered together under God's word, and so let's go to him in prayer and ask his blessing uh, on our study together. Our Father, um, this morning we are um, we're just we're so thankful to be in Your presence. Um, we confess that You are God and God alone. And Lord, what a what a gift, what a treasure, what a condescension um, of Your mercy uh, is Your Word, and You have magnified it above all Your name. Um, I pray that Your name and Your Word would be exalted uh, in our midst this morning. We ask for the power of your Holy Spirit to open our understanding and apply it to our hearts. Um, May we come with humility and submissiveness to what you reveal about yourself in it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so this morning, um, we're we're continuing in our survey of the books of the Old Testament. And so, uh, would you turn with me in your Bibles to some of probably the crispier, newer-looking pages, uh, with the book of Nahum. So, the book of Nahum has two different audiences um, and two distinct messages. The first audience would be uh, the people of God in the southern kingdom of Judah under the reign of King Manasseh in the mid-7th century BC. Um, And the message to these people is one of deliverance and of restoration. Now, the second and perhaps the, the primary audience of the book of Nahum would be the king and the people, the inhabitants, the rulers of the city of Nineveh. So most of us, when we think of Nineveh are going to think of the story of Jonah, who tends to get a little bit more press than uh, his counterpart Nahum. Something about getting swallowed by a giant fish, I guess people tend to remember you. Um, But Nahum is really the, the sequel to the book of Jonah. It's part two, which tells us what happened afterward. And where Jonah recounts the remission of God's judgment Against the people of Nineveh, uh, Nahum reveals the ultimate execution of God's judgment. And in the process, he reveals burning glories and truths about who God is. So at the time this book was written, Nineveh was the largest city in the world, located at the northern part of the Tigris River um, near the modern day city of Mosul, Iraq. Nineveh was the seat of power of the Neo-Assyrian Empire. One hundred years had passed since the events in the book of Jonah, when he preached his one-sentence sermon and the whole city repented. Um, But sadly, that repentance was not to last long. Within a generation, another king rose up who did not know God. And who led the people back into the brutality, the idolatry, and the immorality of their past. So these people are the second audience of the book of Nahum. And his message to them is one of destruction. So what do we know about the author of the book? Uh, Nahum was a seer, a prophet, uh, tasked with the foretelling and the fourth telling of God's word, who ministered in the southern kingdom of Judah during the reign of King Manasseh. And he was the man through whom God chose to deliver this dire proclamation of judgment against Assyria. His name uh, actually means comforter, which is both ironic and fitting, since his message to Nineveh was the farthest thing from comfort imaginable, but also fitting because his message of woe to them was a message of hope and of comfort to Judah, signaling a reprieve from their subjugation and distress at the hands of the Assyrian king. So in his prophetic writing, it's it's very interesting. Nahum um, demonstrates, he shows a surprising familiarity with Nineveh, uh, with its customs and certain unique features about the city and the region. He writes about its, its walls, which were 100 foot tall, its broad streets, its chariots, its wealth, its moats and canals. Um, as well, he mentions several other features that are unique to that region, including its rivers, lions, locusts, figs, dust storms, and earthquakes. Um, and this is surprising, considering that the city of Nineveh was some 750 miles to the north from where where Nahum ministered in Judah. And one explanation um, could be uh, where in verse 1 we read that he is from the town of Elkosh. He is an Elkoshite. And we don't know for for absolutely certain, but many historians historians and Bible scholars surmise um, that Elkosh refers to a city today known as Alkosh, which is a town that is only a few miles across the Tigris River from Nineveh. Um, And to this day, there is a tradition in Al-Kosh that Nahum was from there and that his tomb is still located there. Um, So this would explain his familiarity with uh, Assyrian culture and with certain features of the city. And isn't, isn't it also fitting to think that the son of an Israelite exile who would have grown up a slave in Assyria, was the man whom God chose to deliver Nineveh's death sentence. Now, as far as dating the book and when it was written, it doesn't tell us directly um, when it was written, but we can place it with some some certain clues, historical clues that are um, within the book. Nahum writes of the fall of the city of Thebes as a past event So we know that this conquest of Thebes by uh, the king Ashurbanipal happened in 663 BC. So the book must have been written sometime after that date, and the whole purpose of his prophecy is the foretelling of the fall of Nineveh, which happened at the hands of the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar and his son Nebuchadnezzar in 612 BC. So, So we can be Certain that Nahum was written somewhere between 663 and 612 BC. This would have been during the reign, um, as we said, of King Manasseh, who was the son of Hezekiah, king over Judah. So at this time, Judah was effectively a vassal state of the Assyrian Empire. Following the siege of Jerusalem by the Assyrian king Sennacherib in 701 BC, um, even though that siege failed, Due to divine intervention, um, God continued to afflict his people um, using the Assyrians. And so Judah remained subjugated by these kings, and every year they would have to send uh, an emissary to Nineveh of tribute. Um, And the cities surrounding, the smaller cities surrounding Jerusalem, some of them were even given as prizes by Sennacherib uh, to his allies and the people, atrocities committed against those people. So they were under the boot of Assyria. One of the unique features of the book um, is its, its literary beauty and imagery. Um, here in this three-chapter book, we have some of the most stunning examples of Hebrew poetry uh, in all of the Old Testament. Nahum was a master Wordsmith who utilized these vivid word pictures and metaphors and songs um, to powerful effect. Uh, A portion of of the text in chapter one is this beautiful hymn of Yahweh. Uh, And it's even written, interestingly, in, in an acrostic form where each passage begins with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Um, making Nahum the only prophet to use this form of poetry. Um, But another interesting feature um, that we notice, an important feature within the book, is the deliberate usage of the personal covenant name of God. Actually, the acrostic that Nahum uses in his hymn of Yahweh, uh, he interrupts and he breaks Uh, by interposing God's covenant name, highlighting and and emphasizing its power and weight and glory. Um, The key theme, what, what we could say is the central theme of the book of Nahum, is the character and the glory of God on display, both in his wrath against sin and in his preservation of his people. Um, by way of a, a working outline, we can divide the chapters of the book into four main sections. Um, the first, found in chapter 1, verses 1 through 10, is the glory of Yahweh declared. The second uh, is chap- verses 12 through 15 of chapter 1, the deliverance of Yahweh assured. And in chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, we have the judgment of Yahweh executed. And in chapter 3, verses 1 through 19, we see the justice of Yahweh vindicated. So let's begin by jumping into chapter 1 and verse 1, where we see the glory of of Yahweh, the glory of the Lord, declared. Declared. The passages from Nahum that I'm going to read are from the Legacy Standard Bible, which directly translates the personal name of God, where in most of our translations, it will appear as the word Lord in all capital letters. So verse 1 is essentially the title page telling us what the book contains. It reads, the oracle of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkashite. Some translations will say the burden of Nineveh. And uh, this, is a, this is a heavy utterance of doom from Yahweh. It is the pronouncement of God concerning this city and this people. So this book on its title says essentially the doom of Nineveh. This is their death sentence. And in verses 2 through 10, the seer, Nahum, establishes the basis for the destruction of Nineveh. He launches into this majestic hymn of Yahweh, declaring his glory and describing his character. Look down in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 1. A jealous and avenging God is Yahweh. Yahweh is avenging and wrathful. Yahweh is avenging against his adversaries and he keeps his anger for his enemies. Enemies. Yahweh is slow to anger and great in power, and Yahweh will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. So in his hymn, To the Glory of the Lord, Nahum very deliberately draws language from a passage in Exodus 34, where he is linking his vision of God with the time when God, in response to Moses' plea of, I beseech you, show me your glory. Hid him in the cleft of the rock and made all of his goodness pass before him, declaring the name of the Lord. From Exodus 34, we read, Then Yahweh passed by in front of him and called out, Yahweh, Yahweh, God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. So this song of Nahum's forms a sort of a counterpart to that revelation of God's glory at Mount Sinai. But whereas in that passage the, the emphasis Could be said to be on the mercy and the grace and the love of Yahweh, although his justice is certainly in view. Here, the emphasis in Nahum is on his justice, his wrath and vengeance against sin, although his loving kindness is also kept in view. Romans in chapter 11, verse 22 says, Behold, therefore, the goodness and the severity of God. His glory is seen in both of these perfections. But in verses 1 through 10, Nahum truly is highlighting the aspects of God's character which have to do with his justice. His point being that this pronouncement against Nineveh, against Assyria, is rooted in the very person of God. Their doom is because of who the God of Israel is. So in this song, Nahum delineates seven key attributes of God, which coincidentally are the same number of attributes which are revealed in Exodus 34, or perhaps not so coincidentally. We see in Nahum's song first his jealousy. A jealous and avenging God is Yahweh. Now the jealousy of God um, is not one of his attributes that we, we tend to celebrate um, We may find it difficult to understand. In fact, it has been a a great stumbling block uh, of faith to many this truth that God is jealous. And in part, it's because relative to us humans, jealousy is never seen as something good. Uh, But our grasping, petty, anxious, domineering form of jealousy is something which is born out of hate and evil and self worship. But we are not like God. The jealousy of God is a holy jealousy, born out of his zeal for his own glory and out of his love for his people. Theologian Arthur W. Pink points out that in the scriptures, God is seen to be jealous of three things. God is jealous of his glory. We see this in Isaiah 42 and verse 8, I am the Lord, Yahweh, that is my name, and my glory will I not give to another Secondly, God is jealous of the affections and the worship of His people. In Exodus 34, verse 14, God says, "For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God." Thirdly, God is jealous of His people, for their protection and their preservation. Zechariah chapter two and verse 8 says, "He that touches toucheth you." Touch as the apple of his eye. So biblically, there is a connection between the idea of jealousy and fidelity. And we see this fleshed out in Song of Solomon in chapter six, where we read, or we see love, jealousy and marital fidelity side by side. Um, from Sol- Song of Solomon chapter six, "Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm." For love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. This jealous God asserts his claims over his people and over all creation. As Abraham Kuiper said, there is not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. Now, I, although I believe all three forms of God's jealousy are present in the song of Nahum and in this context, the predominant one seems to be that third, that of his jealousy for the protection and the preservation of his people. This jealousy leads to an inevitable, passionate response. Now, my kids told me, they made me promise that I would use this illustration here, so you can blame them. I definitely do. Um, but I I have been known from time to time, on occasion, to lift weights. Um, and Dominic's not here, so there's no snarky comments coming for that. So. Um, but like a lot of gym rats, I have a, a hack that I use when it's time to put up a some heavy weight when you're, you're grinding through to that one rep max and you've got to kind of summon up all of your reserves of, of strength and just get yourself hyped up. Uh, some guys will, you know, slap themselves in the face. Some will use smelling salts. Some will uh, down pixie sticks. Or there's, Everybody's got their thing. Um, but it, here's what I do. I, uh, I will imagine some form of this scenario where my wife and I are walking down a deserted dark alley in the bad part of town. Don't ask me why we're doing this. Um, And at some point, from out of the shadows, two or three unsavory characters uh, will come out and confront us. And these guys want to hurt my wife. And every time, works perfectly, the, the rage and, and passion that sort of wells up is like, that is enough to put up whatever weight is on the bar. Um, and that is a, that's a natural, visceral, passionate response that we understand, which is connected with love and jealousy for someone that we love. And this is, this is the idea behind the vengeance, the wrath and the anger that God expresses over those Whom he loves. Because he is jealous for his glory, because he is jealous for his people, he brings down vengeance on his enemies. The vengeance of God is actually the second of the attributes which we find in Nahum's hymn. His vengeance, he is said to be a jealous and avenging God, is Yahweh. So this this speaks of God's repayment of man's wickedness, the timing and the manner of which is his prerogative. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 28 says, Vengeance is mine, and recompense. Psalm 94, verses 1 through 2, O Yahweh, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, judge of the earth, repay to the proud what they deserve. Deserve. The third attribute of God that we see in Nahum's hymn is his wrath. Yahweh is avenging and wrathful. Literally, the word means he is a possessor of wrath. Now, the anger of God against sin is not something which bubbles up within him until eventually he lashes out in retribution, He doesn't have a temper which periodically boils over. His wrath is not like ours. It is not out of control. He possesses wrath. It's part of his nature. And the wrath of God is always measured. It is always within his sovereign control. And it is always accomplishing his will. He has stored it up for his enemies. Yet in in verse 3 we read that he is slow to anger. So this is the fourth attribute of God that we see in this hymn. He is slow to anger. He is patient. And in the case of Nineveh, we have ample evidence for this with the book of Jonah. He is patient, but he does not keep his anger forever, and he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. We also see uh, in verse 3 through 10 that he is powerful. This is our fifth attribute. He is great in power. Uh, He is omnipotent. And the evidence for this, Nahum lays out in verses 3 through 10, which we'll get to in just a moment. But the sixth attribute in verse 3 is his justice. He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. He is a just judge. So upon revealing these perfections of God's glory, his jealousy, his wrath, his vengeance, his patience, his power, and his justice, Nahum launches into this staggering demonstration of God's glory as it is seen in creation. When the invisible God wants to give man an impression of his power, he does it through his creation. As the psalmist writes in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. And the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day pours forth speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. Nature is proclaiming, it is shouting out the glory and the power of God. And in Nahum's hymn of Yahweh, the most powerful forces of nature, he enlists as manifestations of and testifiers to the devastating power and majesty of God. In verse 3, we read, In the whirlwind and the storm is his way. The clouds are the dust of his feet. Uh, In the Middle East, especially in Iraq, where ancient Nineveh was located, from Nahum's time until this day, massive storms, massive sandstorms, rip through the country year by year. These sandstorms can be up to 3,000 feet high and stretch across entire nations. Nahum calls to mind for his audience, for these Ninevites, what would have been a familiar and an ominous image of a 3,000-foot wall cloud of a storm bearing down upon them. And he says, that is the dust kicked up by the feet of the God who is coming against you. Also, in this part of the Middle East, um, the, the, the region is crisscrossed by a network of active fault lines throughout the Zagros Mountains, uh, which results in a very high number of earthquakes. In the past 10 years alone, 25,000 earthquakes have been recorded in Iraq and in Iran. And in verse 5 of chapter 1, Nahum writes, Mountains quake because of him, and the hills melt. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence, the world and all the inhabitants in it. He says that is the power of the god coming against you. Verse 6, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? The obvious answer based on everything which Nahum has been saying is no one. No one can stand. It's like asking who can who could withstand a nuclear blast? Nobody. In verse 6, we read, his wrath is poured out like fire. Now in verse 7, the seer gives us the seventh attribute of God's character, and it is his goodness. His goodness. He reminds Judah of why they must turn to God for their help and why they must trust him. Yahweh is good, a strong defense in the day of distress, And he knows those who take refuge in him. So the bad news for God's enemies is good news for his people. It is comfort for his people, meaning that their oppression at the hands of the Assyrians, God was bringing to an end. Nahum's telling Nineveh, Look, this is your enemy. And he's telling Judah, Look, this is your God. In verse 11, we have this sort of superscript at the end of Nahum's hymn where he says, from you, speaking to Nineveh, from you has gone forth one who devised evil against Yahweh, a vile counselor. So this God, this glorious, all-powerful, jealous, vengeful, wrathful, and good God is the one whom you have come up against. Verse 9 says, whatever you devise against Yahweh, he will make a complete destruction of it. He thwarts, he obliterates all the plans of those who are plotting against him. Um, Isaiah 45, verse 24 says, all who rage against him will come to him and be put to shame. So up to this point, Nahum has been speaking primarily to doomed Nineveh. But in verses 12 through 15 of chapter 1, he shifts to his separate audience, the Israelites living uh, in the kingdom of Judah, and his word of doom becomes to them a word of comfort with the deliverance of Yahweh assured. So that is our second section, the deliverance of Yahweh assured. Uh, Look down in verse 12 of chapter one. He says, well, lost my... Though they are at full strength, and likewise many, even so they will be cut off and pass away. So as we mentioned, Nahum served in the kingdom of Judah during the reign of King Manasseh, who was the son of the reformer king Hezekiah. And we're told in Second Chronicles in chapter 33 that in the early part of Manasseh's reign, he did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. We're also told that under his leadership, the kingdom of Judah, according to 2 Chronicles 33, nine, was more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. And so God, true to his covenant, had sovereignly brought affliction upon them. He had used their subjugation at the hands of the Syrian nation to afflict them and to bring them to repentance. He sent prophets to them. We're told of whom Nahum was very likely one to speak to the people, calling them to repent, but they paid no attention. Um, From 2 Corinthians 33, verse 11, "'Therefore the Lord brought upon them "'the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria "'who captured Manasseh with hooks "'and bound him with chains of bronze "'and brought him to Babylon. "'And when he was in distress,' He entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. After returning to Jerusalem, King Manasseh led the people in this national repentance and revival Um, verse 15 says, And he took away the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord and all the altars that he had built on the mountain of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem. And he threw them outside the city. Nahum's word of deliverance and restoration from the Lord would have come to Judah at this time of repentance led by King Manasseh. Verse 13 of Nahum in chapter one says, and now I will break his yoke, speaking of Assyria, from off of you and will burst your bonds apart. So the challenge of Nahum to these Israelites, uh, to to these uh, in the land of Judah, was to renew their pilgrimages to Jerusalem and to renew their uh, yearly feasts of, of Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles, to be restored to the right and proper worship Of Yahweh, something which they did not do and could not do under the oppressive regime of Assyria. But in verse 15, he says, Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah, fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. And in 2 Chronicles 33, we read of the response of the people to this call to return to the worship of Yahweh. It says of of Manasseh, he also restored the altar of the Lord and offered on it sacrifices of peace offerings and of thanksgivings. And he commanded Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. Now in verse 14, Nahum pivots again and addresses the king of Assyria. Uh, in this, and he also speaks to him in the final verse of the book. The king at this time would have been uh, King Ashurbanipal II. This man's favorite title for himself was the king of the universe. At the height of his power, Ashurbanipal commissioned a series of carved reliefs to adorn the walls of his entire palace in Nineveh. Um, and they're on display, they're on exhibit at the British Museum in London today. They depict him, everyone, as this invincible, indestructible hero, scaling the walls of his enemies, fighting lions with his bare hands. There's even one which shows him reclining in his garden, taking uh, what looks like a picnic lunch, and the head of one of his enemies is hanging from a tree across from him. And all of this was propaganda. All of it uh, cried out, Ashurbanipal, Is the king of the universe, and he cannot be defeated. Yet the true king of the universe here says, The Lord has given a commandment about you No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut you off. The carved image and the metal image, I will make your grave, for you are vile. God says, I'm going to dig your grave and put you in it. He is successful against his enemies. So in chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, we come to our third major division of the book, with the judgment of Yahweh executed. Verses 1 through 5 describe the coming siege of the city of Nahum, and we won't read them for sake of time, but you should. And verses 6 through 10 then describe the breach of the city walls and the sack and the destruction of Nineveh. And then within this this third section, we have these verses 11 through 13, uh, really sort of an eerie passage. Uh, It's written in the form of a dirge or a funeral lament, um, signifying that the coming destruction, which is prophesied, is so certain that Nahum has written a funeral song for the occasion. And it is is thick with irony. Um, Verses 11 through 13 say... Where is the lion's den? The feeding place of the young lions, where the lion and lioness went, where his cubs were with none to disturb. The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lionesses. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. So what does this mean? Lions were absolutely ingrained in the Assyrian psyche at this time. The fertile reed banks of the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers. The fertile forests um, supported high numbers of prey, of game. And this meant that there were high numbers as well of lions in this region. There's an unusual high population of lions surrounding Nineveh. And they were of great cultural significance. If you look at the Babylonian reliefs and sculptures, lions are everywhere. Um, They're covered with the images of them. And the Assyrian king Ashurbanipal would actually lead his his royal entourage um, on these lion hunts. And he would even arrange spectacles where, um, in in a sort of theater, Maximus, uh, the king would be uh, placed in the middle and wild wild lions would be captured and released into that theater with all of these onlooking crowds. And he would kill the lion, he would stab it to death. Nahum's song here basically flips this script on its head, where according to his metaphor, the king and his military leaders are themselves the hunted lions. And Nineveh is their empty lair full of strangled prey and torn flesh. This is personal. These are sinners in the hands of an angry God. He says, behold, I am against you. Declares the Lord of hosts I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of this God. So in chapter three, we come to our final major division of the book with the justice of Yahweh vindicated, verses one through nineteen. The charges are read. The sentence is pronounced. Chapter 3 and verse 1 says, Woe to the city of bloodshed, completely full of deception and pillage. Her prey never departs. In verses 2 through 3, the seer writes in such a way that you can almost see with him his vision Of this day of judgment. I want to read these verses. And as I read, pay attention to the imagery, to the words, the specific pictures that he conjures up, and the sounds and the sights of the day of judgment against Nineveh. The sound of the whip, the sound of the rumbling of the wheel, galloping horses. And bounding chariots, horsemen charging, swords flaming and spears flashing, many slain, a mass of corpses, and there is no end to the dead bodies. They stumble over the dead bodies. He is painting this vivid, stark, terrifying picture of what it is to have the God of Israel come against You. And this time there would be no repentance. There would be no reprieve. He says, Your wound is incurable. And then in the last verse, speaking to the king, he says, For upon whom has not come your evil? History proves to us that everything God said would happen, happened. And just as we read in chapter 1 verse 8, but with an overflowing flood, he will make a destruction of its place. And in chapter 2 verse 6, the gates of the rivers are opened and the palace is melted away. In 612 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon besieged the city and torrential rains caused the Tigris River to overflow its banks, flooding the city and undermining its walls. The city fortifications fell, like Nahum said, as ripened figs, and the Babylonian armies poured in through the gaps. A Greek historian writing in the first century BC describes the final hours of the king of Nineveh with these words In order that he might not fall into the hands of the enemy, he built an enormous pyre in his palace. Heaped upon it all of his gold and silver as well as every article of the royal wardrobe. And then he consigned his concubines and eunuchs and himself and his palace to the flame. Nahum chapter three, verse 15 says, there fire will consume you. The sword will cut you down. The destruction of the city was so complete that it would not be discovered again until the year 1842. The word of the Lord Proves true. So this morning, how should we respond to this message of Nahum? This message that the character and the glory of God is on display both in his wrath against sin and in his preservation of his people. I believe this calls for two responses from us. First, we should respond with gratefulness. Gratefulness for the mercy that we have received And for the judgment of God, which, as Pastor John MacArthur puts it, is both retributive and redemptive. And we see this most fully demonstrated at the cross, where God's wrath against sin, as he pours it out on his Son, accomplishes redemption for those upon whom he will show his grace. It is all of grace. Israel's sin was not less than that of Assyria, but they were granted repentance. They were chosen by God to be his covenant people. As we read in Exodus chapter 33, verse 19, our Lord says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. We who have received his mercy should be grateful. Secondly, we should respond with fear. To close, I would like to read this reflection from Arthur W. Pink. He says, God is a God to be loved, but he is also a God to be feared. For our God is a consuming fire. Hebrews in chapter 12, verse 29. Did we perceive that God is light as well as love? We should stand more in holy awe of him. Did we behold his severity as readily as we do his goodness? We should be more fearful of displeasing him. Did we bear in mind that he not only pardons, but also visits the iniquities of the fathers upon the children? We should be more careful about our walk than we are. God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be had in reverence of all them. That are about him. That is all of our lesson for this morning. You can be dismissed, and we will uh, regather in here at ten thirty for worship.